0: This is Profiles in Risk, hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every
1: week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes, who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot Now,
0: on to the show. Welcome to Profiles and Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. On this episode, I will be speaking with Rob Galbraith. Rob is the Director of Property Underwriting at USAA. Rob, welcome to Profiles and Risk. Thank you very much, Nick.
1: Appreciate it. Uh, I believe I may be the first guest ever to be on the Attachment Point and Profiles and Risk. So that would be a, a huge personal milestone if that
0: is the case. Not only that, Rob, you are the first cat person, the first person that deals with natural catastrophes for the most part on a day-to-day basis to come on this show. And I've had a lot of my friends ask me, when are you going to talk about cat? And I'm always like, anyone that wants to talk about cat can come on the show. And that's why you're here. Um, you, you wrote an article on uh on hail and we're going to really get into that um but yeah um speaking of cat we're recording this right before a potential hurricane is about to make landfall in texas so uh i i think i think it might be a week or two before the audience actually gets to hear this but what's going on with harvey
1: yeah so um Great question. I actually got that uh, question today. Uh, came down from our our top executives and a buddy of mine in our claims department called me and said they want to know what's the underwriting response plan for Harvey. And so I tried to tell them well, for the most part, it is what it is. <laughs> whatever risks we put on the books or haven't put on the books, and whatever coverage limits we've done or whatnot, that that is a uh, and baked in the cake already from an underwriter. So we always kind of sit by it nervously and our claims partners, of course, are, are frantically uh, preparing, getting all the contingency plans in place. There's lots of activity on their end. On our end, you know, we do um, have the ability to suspend coverage as many companies do ahead of the storm. So uh, for audience members that maybe aren't as familiar in the catastrophe space, um, you know, there's obviously the concept of adverse selection, which we're all pretty familiar with, but uh, you just don't want that policyholder to, to get in right ahead. I, I usually will say when the, when the ember shower is hitting the roof, that is not the time to purchase your your insurance coverage. And so we're monitoring for, for a potential um, suspension of coverage depending on the path. But, you know, when we were looking at it today, Said, this thing could hit between South Padre and Port Arthur. I, I can't really, uh, there's that, a whole lot of people that would be by a, a coverage suspension. So um, it's the one pool really kind of in our arsenal that we do have for an underwriter. But for the most part, whatever decisions we've made, this is the moment of truth.
0: Yeah, I I don't think it changes very much from company to company. Ever since I've been involved with CAT, as the storm's approaching, <laughs> everyone's kind of running around uh, all crazily uh, trying to get any kind of additional little bit of information. I I think the funniest part is when, you know, the Eastern seaboard uh, storms as they're approaching and, you know, the underwriters get together and they start making a decision. Okay. Well, we're going, we're going to initiate a moratorium. We're not going to write any new policies. So we need a list of, uh, you know, counties where we're not we're not going to write policies and essentially if it's an eastern seaboard storm it's always like okay from florida to maine no more business <laughs> it's kind of i think it's kind of funny but I, I think your term bake you know it's baked in the cake it, there's very little you can do you you know you want you want to make sure that no one's uh, writing business or dropping deductibles buying extra limit before the event but other than that there's not much you can do your book is your book that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, yeah, sometimes I,
1: I think uh, folks are looking to us to, to I, I call it waving the underwriting wand. You know, make your underwriting wand and make it all better and make a loss is not too bad. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. It is what it is. It's baked in the cake. So, all those decisions, all the analysis that we did, all the planning, understanding, that, you know, the capital impacts. um profitability the product growth opportunity you know all those factors that we consider when we look at those things this again is is the moment of truth um, to see how how robust that analysis was
0: yeah so before we jump into the hail the hail the hail stuff the stuff that uh you know why i wanted to bring you on the show um for for the listener's sake for those that aren't familiar with cat and and you know it's a it's a word that we use for natural catastrophes. We call it cat. Um, you know, Tony's had fun with that, putting cats and, uh, tutus, uh, on, uh, you know, on, as a, as an image on our show and things like that. But, um, how, how do you think about it? Um, you know, when you, you have a lot of decision-making to do trying to create guidelines so, you know, what's what's your general feeling about cat and and for the audience sake, you know, how do you distinguish cat from non-cat and how do you you know think about fire and some of those perils? You know, so I don't want to throw a million questions at you, but what's your as you're creating under underwriting, underwriting guidelines, how are you thinking about this?
1: Yeah, so so great question and a couple of different thoughts on that. So. Uh, First of all, the way I usually think about losses in general is you've got a class of losses that is actually handled by a a different group for the most part in our underwriting department um, on non-weather losses. So your plumbing leaks, your bikes getting stalled off the porch, those type of things, and those are fairly predictable based on the law of large numbers. We don't necessarily who's going to have that plumbing leak, but we know in aggregate X many people are going to have a plumbing leak in this period and it's going to cost. Oftentimes when you're trying to understand you know, why did we do better than plan or worse than plan for a given year, it's, it's really going to be the weather losses and how those weather events were distributed among your book. If you had bad weather where you've got a lot of uh, book of business, a lot of, a lot of policy holders, that's going to be a bad uh, year for you. Um, if it was a bad event for the industry, uh, that's when it gets to the cat portion. So not only did you have a bad weather loss, but it was significant enough that it affected you know, the industry. Uh, There's a group, as you're well-known, Nick, called uh, PCS, Property Claim Services, that kind of declares for the industry uh, what is a catastrophe, and that has a whole lot of insurance and reinsurance implications on it. Um, And then on top of that are the ones that are really the tail scenarios, right, where you're looking at um, the probable maximum loss type of events, uh, the events that uh, an actuary friend of mine uh, calls game-over scenarios. So one of the things they're going to put USA or, or any other business, company out, out of business? Now, what are solvency-type risks? And so if you think about it that way, I think historically a lot of the catastrophe management has been really around that tail value at risk, that probable maximum loss at solvency, that one in 100 or one in 250-year type, type of event, uh, and understanding what are those and, and you know, how do I need to plan for reinsurance, having underwriting restrictions in place, coverage restrictions, maybe I'm... Within wind in the wind pool area uh, along the, the Gulf Coast, et cetera. I think increasingly, and this will kind of pivot to, to a little bit of the hail conversation, we're seeing more and more catastrophes being declared by PCS that in the past, if we had a major weather event that was going to be declared a cat, we all kind of had line of sight to what it is. You know, We had a major front go through with some tornadoes spinning off or we had you know, large swaths of hail, a big freeze event increasingly they're happening with such frequency that you're like a cat was declared what happened (laughs) even though there was severe weather in the country and so you're kind of seeing some that really are not those um, solvency risks or the thing that's going to displace a ton of people where FEMA's got to come in and it's that kind of disaster but yet it's certainly um, driving a lot of of insurance losses so it's a Question to answer. Yeah, yeah. We really take it from the weather. Just let's look at weather risk in general, and then what are some of those that become uh, large in terms of the the lost dollars paid out?
0: I'd like to get like a a, you know kind of a panel format at some point and talk about that. Is is the weather getting worse? You know, um, we we haven't been having a lot of hurricanes is that luck um it does seem like we're getting a lot of severe rainstorms you know but from like a tornado hail situations we get you know a really bad year a really good year a really bad year a really good year it's really hard to put your finger on it I, I, what I'll, I'll get you on the panel but you know you um you must think about this all the time you have any opinions
1: yeah, so obviously a lot of debate on climate change, um, is whether worsening or not, you know, what are the causes. I, I don't uh, dig too much into what are the causes. I let my meteorological friends uh and, and climate scientists uh, debate that. But um certainly I, I think we can say we are seeing more frequent extreme weather. That that is something that we can say. Now why that is, but again, it's more of a scientific debate. Um Having said that, you're right. So, the absence of hurricanes, uh, the absence of a major earthquake uh, in the United States recently. Um, so, you can look at what are the big loss drivers for the year in, in hail. And, and I know some of the largest catastrophe years have been over the past five years. And we really haven't had that, that Katrina or, or Hurricane Andrew type of event. So, you're kind of scratching your head when you look at this, the, the loss dollars paid out and the amount that's paid out. And then you look at the events, it wasn't that one maybe memorable event, Um, it does seem that that we are seeing more extreme events. Now, whether that's the weather itself, whether that's uh, where people are building in homes and and where they're located, um, we've obviously seen demographic shifts as well, right, from the north to the south, and so more people building home in in harm's way, that's definitely something that we debate as well. So, um, hard to make any definitive statements, but I do think we are seeing an increase in Weather events are leading to some of these these outsized losses.
0: It's uh, it's funny. I'm I'm headed to California tomorrow for a week, and the first thing that crossed my mind was California hasn't had a major major earthquake in quite some time. Uh, please do not let it happen while while I'm there. Uh, I have I have no interest in being stuck there. So it it is kind of eerie um, from the hurricane perspective and the earthquake perspective how few events have actually occurred over the last 10 years. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried that it's all going to come back and bite us all at the same time. And can you imagine like a significant hurricane and a significant earthquake hitting in the same year? Talk about, you know, that, that would end the soft market.
1: No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. didn't and- that's actually one of the, the things that, again, I don't really get too in the weeds for, for the audience, but um, you know, there's been a lot that have been driving, I guess, risk appetites in cap-prone areas. Um, low interest rates have, have driven a lot of um, capital looking for a return on investment. You've got the traditional reinsurance market that is increasingly competing with index-linked securities. and, and um, a lot of folks have been flocking to the cat bonds and those type of vehicles because they're looking for that incremental lift off of, um, you know, you can barely earn anything on, on treasuries and other things. So, you know, the the amount of capital in the reinsurance market can drive a lot of uh, decisions from primary insurers in terms of how much risk to take on, and it's, it's not necessarily correlated with what is the true risk of, of loss, right? That's part of it, but there's this whole other part to it. So... I think to your point, Nick, You know, if we do have some of those significant events, not only will our appreciation of the risk change, but I think that ability to, to um, cover the cost of capital or get reinsurance or, or coverage, that that could potentially dry up. I mean, um, pricing has never been lower in the reinsurance market. Everyone keeps knowing if it's going to turn, it has to turn, if <laughs> it yeah. doesn't turn. So um, you could definitely have second, third, kind of fourth order impacts that um, rapidly could cause a market change if we had it wouldn't take one event but a sequence like you're saying of major events back to back definitely um can change the dynamics of the market uh, tremendously
0: yeah i think that that'll be the difference between the the smart companies and the dumb money uh so to speak i i was doing a little bit of research today on fair plans the massachusetts fair plan i think like 40% of the book are cape cod homes so it, it's actually wind related uh the reason why they're they're in that fair plan and and for the listeners a fair plan is like the state's insurer of last resort um, i'll I'll make sure i put uh, put some information about that in the show notes but uh it's essentially if you can't get coverage the the state has a like a consortium of insurers that will offer coverage um, as a last resort and and i was reading about uh, a new england company that was aggressively going after those cape cod homes and the idea was that they were so overpriced that you know they could they could run models on that and basically come in and say well okay we really we think we understand the risk we'll undercut the fair plan to get the business but it still gives us uh, you know some elbow room to actually make some money there even though we're sticking our necks out I kind of like that approach, although it's it's probably a fireable offense if, you know, if a a major hurricane hit, you know, the southeastern New England area and they suffered a big loss. But I, I like that approach. It's smart. It's using analytics, using the models for what they're what they're supposed to be used for, which is to to get insight, to get a competitive edge. Um, so th- there's, you know, I, I see, I see exactly what you're saying. I think there's going to be a difference between companies like that and companies that are just, we need to just get premium on the books and, uh, and they'll write it any which way they can.
1: Yeah. And that's something that we, we have a lot of healthy debate with, with, you know, friends across the industry that kind of, um, are experts in the field, you know, taking a, a state like Florida and so citizens, um, is there, uh, state-run risk pool. At one time, Citizens was the ninth largest homeowners insurer in the country. <laughs> they only insure Florida homes. So that really goes against our principles of insurance and diversification of risk. And so they've obviously spent uh, time, for anyone f- familiar with the Florida market over the past several years, kind of depopulating uh, citizens and, and working hard to uh, have those, those policyholders at war with this kind of quasi-governmental um, organization out back into the private marketplace but uh, much of Florida is run by domestic markets they're they're uh, not rated by ambassadors and p some of the more standard rating agencies they're, they're rated by coming known as as demo tech and has you know lower standards and so uh, some of the questions is know are those companies truly solid if there was a really big hurricane and we really dodged a bullet last year with Matthew going up the the coastline it was a little bit of a wobble and it ended up going 20 miles east to where everyone thought it was going to be and that wobble saved a lot of people a lot of money and a lot of devastation because um, you know you were talking about a nightmare scenario starting in Miami and literally going up the east side of the Florida coast there's so much uh, property there, there's so much risk there, so much uh, values of risk both both personal lines and commercial, uh, that certainly could have been a nightmare scenario, would have tested the solvency of some of these carriers, and ultimately, does it fall back on, you know, the state guarantee fund, and are they really funded to, uh, you know, that's supposed to be the, the fund that's there if if an insurer goes belly up, and, you know, we do see this in different states where an insurer will, will become insolvent, but they're usually worn off for independent reasons. You don't have this correlation of risk. Well, um, a, a Hurricane Andrew-type scenario, again, in, in Florida in 2017 certainly could create a, a correlation of risks where you have multiple companies failing and, and just um, you know chaos in, in the marketplace.
0: So, well, the, um, there's, been, there's been a flurry of um, Andrew anniversary uh, reruns on the industry, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's you know, I, I if you go through like Twitter or LinkedIn, uh, A.I.R. is rerun Andrew, Swiss Re is rerun Andrew, and you know, I think this it's a almost a consensus that it would be a sixty billion dollar event, which is is significant. And and like you said, Florida is a very uh, domestically oriented market. So much so, I, I have a friend who does a lot of uh, retro sessions. Uh, for a reinsurance company, and he gets he gets to look at a lot of that uh, domestic business that comes up, and like you said, it's not rated by AM Best, so they just they need a minimum rating to be able to operate in the state, and the uh, the net PML curve, the the net loss curve, is like flat, 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 flat. Hits the one in a hundred year, it spikes up. And so these, a lot of these companies are, are capitalized to the one in a hundred year loss. If they get the, if they get that loss, they're out of business. Um, that's pretty scary. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think,
1: um, you know, from a risk perspective, um, you know, I always try to have a balanced approach as an underwriter. So, um you know no risk is a bad risk if it's if it's rated appropriately right if you can get an appropriate premium for it so um, we try not to talk in terms of good or, or bad risk we'll talk about risks that are priced correctly and rise, risks that are, are not priced correctly and if it's not priced correctly the question is you know will it get there right is this a rate change or two away from from potentially being profitable business or um, is there just just no way and then um, there may be profitable business, but but you worry about that concentration of risk, right? You worry about some of those game over scenarios. And so, what's going to threaten um, threaten your company uh, from, from going insolvent? And so, having a diversification of risk. And sometimes there's a benefit to writing um, risky business, but in different parts, right? So, sure. the risk isn't correlated. Like you're sure. saying, you know, well, maybe if I've got a decent amount of hurricane exposure, I stop writing. Hurricane funding as I start writing more earthquake business.
0: That's right, um, California earthquake is well known as a, a diversifying peril. So, um, so let's let, it's let's...
1: fascinating. I, I call the the uh, I, I call the the, the leaks and the the bike skins. I call that the, the boring stuff. I get to, to do the the sexy stuff with the catastrophes and um, like again, that does drive a lot of the variability, you know, in your, in your profit and. Um, ultimately determines, in large part, the, the long-term success of your business. So uh, that's why, to me, it's a fascinating area to be
0: in. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about some of the more fun stuff. So you published an article on INS Nerds about um, a, a about a trip. You were actually embedded into the the IBHS, um, and you got to travel around the country and look at hailstorms and understand and work with scientists summarize that article summarize uh what you did um I, I think it's a i've never done anything like that so i'm i'm interested i'm I'm also interested interested to know how how were you able to get embedded uh into into that scenario
1: Yeah, so one of the great things about my job is I have the ability to, to travel quite a bit. I've been in over 20 states in the last year. Um, I was in, fortunate enough to go to Hawaii on business travel last year. I went to the Big Island. I got to see Kilauea. I got to see some some lava bubbling up. Talked to an expert there. Um, talked to hurricane experts, you know, wildfire experts, you name it. And um, you know, scientists, you know, fire ecologists, firefighters, um, you know, meteorologists um all sorts of the of, of, of specialties um so it's it's you know i forensics uh, claims folks they can tell you what's uh, real hail damage what's what's fake hail damage or, or you know fraudulent hail damage things like that But one of the cool things is just the people that i meet in these travels and, and some of these these expertise and, and the, the broad range of disciplines but um yeah as you mentioned, I wrote the article for Ryan. I stars actually had been tweeting about it throughout my my week in June, and Carly was kind enough to say, Hey, I'd love to have you write a, a blog article on it um so I' a test is the Insurance Institute for business and home safety u um, s a is a member company of our many insurance carriers, and their mission really is to um understand um what scientifically uh, what drives um, insurance losses uh, for homes and, and commercial structures. And then once they understand the science, you know, what are some things that we can do to help reduce those losses in terms of building a better building? Uh, they have a wonderful program on the um, personal line side. I think they're rolling this out to commercial as well called Fortified Homes. Um, so the idea is that we actually know through years of uh, science working with structural engineers and others how to build a hardened home in the path of a hurricane or high wind, hail, uh, prone area. And um, really, you know, a lot of it is about the, the structure itself. Um, Constant as you know, continuous load path. So you've got the, the roof is one of the most vulnerable uh, structures of the roof looks off and kind of creates a vacuum, where everything gets sucked out, um, causes a ton of damage to your home. So if you if you if you keep the roof in place, keep the roof cover and the, the roof itself in place, if that's attached to the walls. They have that in place and then the walls to the, the foundation you kind of create this continuous load path and so they've got a really cool testing facility in south carolina where um it's it's, it's you know six stories high and they, they've they got 105 fans that they can blow you know simulate the, the, the cat 2 type event they can do wildfire simulations all sorts of different stuff so um one of the really neat things they're doing on the hail side the the um It looks at the testing standards currently for roofing manufacturers um, for impact-resistant roofs. One of them uses steel balls, which don't represent hail in any way, shape, or form. And then another one uses ice balls that are are, um, manufactured and and almost like ice that you would make if you um, you poured water in your freezer and made ice cubes and brought it out. And so um, what we've known meteorologically is that the, the ice that you have in an ice cube that kind of has that cracking and that expanding. That's not what a hailstone looks like. If you ever were to pick up a hailstone, the hailstone has rings to it and the hail is kind of caused up in the atmosphere to some of these super cells. It's going up and then down and then up and down. And each time it kind of has a circular motion. It's, it's 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 melting, it's picking up water and then it's freezing again. And so it kind of creates those ring structures and then eventually it gets so dense that it just, you know, comes down. Um, and they're not perfectly spherical either. Um, sometimes they have a nice sphere, but oftentimes they're very jaggedy um, and, and they have all sorts of different shapes. And so none of that had been replicated in the lab environment before. And so when IBHS built this research test facility in 2010, um, one of the main things i are interested in, is in looking at, at hail and the, the, how hail causes damage to to roofs, to siding, uh, because it is such a big loss driver for the industry. And so as they were starting that process of manufacturing hail they realized they just they had some unanswered questions on how would we replicate real hail in the lab environment we need to go out in the field and actually measure what real hail looks like in order to try to go back to the test lab and simulate it and so they've had this hail study for about five years and um they started just by literally going out um checking for 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 where they thought it was right for hail conditions to happen kind of waiting um, and then they try to, to have the storm pass by and, and collect some of the hail, and they collect the uh, measurements, they use calipers, they'll collect the mass on it. Um, and, and they've uh, now created a database of over 5,000 hailstones. Uh, so they have a fairly robust database on, on what hail looks like. And they would um, more recently do 3D scans of those hailstones. So they have a, a great representation of what it looks like. Um, they've also invented an, uh, a, a technology called a distrometer. So it's, it's something that you display out in the field and you, you kind of try to get it ahead of the path of the hailstorm to get out, you get the heck out of the way <laughs> have the hail fall on it and you can actually measure, um, you know, the velocity and the impact of the hail and through that electronic measurement, uh, it's got a kind of computer underneath a hardened shell that, that protects it, but also collects the measurements. And so, um, they get some pretty good data and then they've been able to, to mirror it up with radar data, um, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, um, I've been following them on social media and I was just amazed by, you know, all the stuff that they were doing in the field and finding. And so, um, they, they were kind of, I think I was one of their biggest, uh, uh retweeters and, and followers. And so, um, you know, found out that, that, that some other companies had, had sent uh, folks out in the field and kind of asked them, what do I need to do to, to get, um, on the list? You know, how do I deploy with you guys? And so, uh, they, uh, you know, let me know what the process was, had to fill out a form and, and, um, sign a waiver, <laughs> and all, you know, <laughs> I was gonna ask that. some other stuff, right. That kind of goes into it. But, um, yeah, I had the fortune of, of being on the list uh, for 2017 and, uh, they had two deployments ahead of one. I, and, and you really aren't standby. So, you know, there's kind of a window where they think, um, they're going to have hail. They had a phase one and, and a phase two, that they had some, uh, object, objectives that they were hoping to to get through through this year's um, uh, study in the field, and unfortunately for the first two deployments, um I, I wasn't able to go I had conflicts, and they just so happened to have a second deployment in, in phase two. Uh, it happened in early June, and and so you get 48 hours notice. You got to book your flight. You know you don't know where you're going to go, and you got to be ready. Got to tell the family. I've got a wife and two kids, so I had uh, been traveling quite a bit this spring, and kind of told her, "Oh, my child's going to, you know, wind down now after the summer, and I'll be home a lot more." And I had to turn around and tell her, "Yeah, I'm going to Denver in 48 hours for a week. Good luck with the kids."
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to Denver for work. Sure, sure, you are
1: exactly. Yeah, chasing storms with uh, a bunch of people I met on the internet.
0: The the uh, your dist- distrometer. Uh, description sounded like the movie Twister, where uh, they had to get get ahead of it to put this new device uh, there. So I I can completely picture that. So, um, you know, where did you sleep? I I actually, I think I read in the article that you, uh, they told you ahead of time, we, you know, be prepared, we may not eat for a while. Like once you're out in the field, you're out in the field and there are no lunch or dinner breaks. You just keep working until that, you know, you can't get what you need or the conditions change or something like that. So, yeah. So uh, talk about, you know, what it was for you uh, mentally uh, in there trying to, you know, as a as a as a citizen, basically um, hanging out with people that have probably done this uh, quite a few times. It was your first rodeo. So where did you sleep? What did you eat?
1: Yeah, so I got really lucky that a, a friend of mine, Brian Wood, who uh, works at Assurant, he's a, a meteorologist um, for them, and uh, he actually was on uh, Weather Geeks recently uh, on the Weather Channel, so I was very jealous that he had that opportunity, um, talking about um, why an insurance company has a meteorologist on their staff and what he does um, for and So. Um, He's he's a a friend that we've been followed and connected, and he actually we were hoping to deploy together, but but he deployed ahead of me, and so um, I was able to pick his brain when I knew that I was going to be deploying. And so he's the one that had given me advice, and they 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 kind of let you know ahead of time. A lot of it was just confirm what I had already got from the team leader at at IBHS, Um, but um, you know you. each day is different. So, you know, you, you may um, get to sleep in a little bit, or you may have to get up early. And a lot of the, the morning is, is to get in the right position. Um, most of where we're deploying is actually out in the plain states. And so, um, you know, you can have some long drives for several hours to get where you need to go to where hail is going to form. And, and often hail kind of um, builds throughout the day. So it, it, it's uncommon to happen early in the morning, but kind of, um, You know, as uh, the conditions kind of ripen, the supercell kind of starts uh, building, and you can even literally see it growing. You kind of see an anvil forming in the clouds, and then you can kind of see the development of what could be a a hail-producing storm. And so you want to get in the right position. And then you usually kind of sit and you wait. And so, you know, we might play a game of soccer, play some cards, you know. Oftentimes, we were able to to sit down for, for
0: lunch. Hi, everyone. This is Nick. We had some technical difficulties in this interview with Rob. I had to re-ask the question, so you get to hear it in duplicate. My apologies. How did you get yourself embedded into this group, and what you know? What was your day like? You know, reading the article, there were you made it pretty clear that day to day there was going to be a lot of volatility. You didn't know when you were going to eat. So I'm curious, like, where did you sleep? Um, how often did you eat? What was you know what was the day like? Uh, it sounds it sounds as though there was like a lot of travel, but can you walk us through like what a typical or average day was while you were out on the road?
1: Yeah, so to get on the team, I had been following them for quite a bit just because I'm so connected because of what I do with IVHS, and so I've been following the Hale study for for several years and. Uh, on social media and 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 kind of cheering them on, and so I had seen that that they have limited slots for uh, industry professionals that are members of IBHS to potentially deploy. And so you sign a waiver and you go through a process, screening process, and uh, once you're approved, then you're kind of on the the list to potentially deploy, and you get a call in 48 hours to deploy. So for me, we flew out to Denver, met the team there. Um, they ship a lot of the equipment, and so the first day is really getting the equipment, prepping it, and then you know, the team leaders really plot the course and they're looking at a lot of meteorological data and trying to understand, you know, where it's hail most likely to form. They, they take in a ton of information, but uh, the um, Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma, or the term by the, the National Weather Service is um, probably the, the best source, and it's kind of a baseline source that a lot of folks know for um, severe weather forecasting. And so based on that, along with a whole bunch of other data, um, you know, you are driving long distances. And so uh, where you stay is going to vary day to day based on where the meteorological dishes are, are really set up for for the best chance of, of catching hail with some of the um, measuring equipment that we have. So it's not just about where the hail is going to be, but can we get there on the road network? Um, where's the best place to deploy? Can we get a big spread? We want the probes to be spaced such that you're really capturing the entire hail swath ideally, so that a probe on either end actually doesn't see any hail and, and the ones in the middle are getting the hail, so you're getting the full spectrum. That's not always uh, easy to do because the storms can move very fast. They can move up to, to 60 miles an hour sometimes, um, so it, it, it's definitely a challenge. Um, So a typical day, you know, usually the morning you're, you're getting up, um, if you're lucky, you get to sleep in, if you're unlucky, um, you're getting up early. And and if you're getting up early, it's mostly because you you have a long day's drive ahead of you. And I usually grab breakfast at the hotel, try to roll out. And, And almost every day we had a several hour drive to get in position We'd stop for lunch. And then usually by early to mid-afternoon, we're kind of in a position uh, in the Plains states where we needed to be, and a lot of times we're just waiting at that point for the hail to form. So um, the storm clouds are are, are building. Uh, there's kind of an anvil being created, and you can literally kind of see the hail-producing storms forming right in front of you. Um, and so once we think they're they're ready to go, we're checking radar and other stuff, and then figuring out okay, where do we need to do to to um, deploy the the distrometers in the path of the storm get the heck out of the way and the storm pass over then go back and collect the the, the measurements collect the probes uh, pick up some hailstones around uh, get some idea for the density of the the, the hail you know like how, how uh, what was it, the, the variance of the size of the hail and then you know how much fell was it scattered you know widely or was it um, highly concentrated in a particular area and, and get our measurements um, and so, depending on when the hail um, hits, um, how much hail you get, <clears throat> how many permits you gotta pick up, how many measurements you gotta take, it dictates a lot of, you know, are you, are you stopping at 8 p.m., are you stopping at 10 p.m., are you stopping at, at, at midnight. Um, so, fortunately, you know, each of the motels we stayed at were, were, were decent motels. Uh, nothing was terrible, but yeah, in some of these areas, it is slim pickings. You aren't booking your hotel until that evening. So, and um, for a team of 11, Um, that that, that can be a challenge getting a a block of rooms like that at at last minute notice.
0: Were you ever scared?
1: Yeah, there was one time I was scared. Uh, So it's funny you ask because I told everybody that it went against every fundamental grain as an underwriter. I'm a risk (laughs) adverse person to begin with. And so I fell into underwriting and uh, it was a perfect profession for me. And so, you know, driving towards the storm (laughs) with every fiber in my body said, get inside, get away from this thing. Um, But it was definitely a rush. It was unbelievable seeing some of these meteorological and some of the cloud formations and some of the, what I realized before, I went on this is that I tend to keep my eye view in the ground and below, right? I look at the trees. I look at the road. I look at people. I never look up at the sky. That's just not something that I kind of ever did as an underwriter. And if you're a meteorologist, that's all you do is you're looking up at the sky and you're fascinated by uh, the clouds forming and, and everything. And, um, so, um, yeah, driving into the dark clouds was tough, but the, the one that I got probably the most scared for the most part, everything You know, we got in, we dropped our problems, we got out of the way, the hail went over. We really weren't, um, close to being in harm's way but there was one day that this storm was going ridiculously fast and uh we were trying to to get ahead of it we, we just could not get every every probe laid down because of the speed of the storm and so you know, we started hearing ping and we're like we got to get out of here so um yeah uh, that that was uh that was definitely a, a scary day um but some fascinating stuff too i remember there was one where the storm kind of passed almost perpendicular to us we went back to pick up the probes and, and the hail data and we could see in the back end of the storm tornadoes that had been formed and uh, were coming down and, and it was again from a distance uh but it was really just uh gorgeous to see so you, you really are in awe of the weather as you're going about your your scientific beauty capturing the, the measurements and the data and so it was. Uh, fascinating i find myself now i'm always looking at the sky now because of the the experience i, I will say this nick um while I, I tell people at storm chasing i tell them it's not like twister uh, which every storm chaser by the way loves that movie so <laughs> if you guys haven't seen twister it's an oldie but a, a goody 20 year anniversary uh early this year and um that is one definitely worth it with. it's not like that but it's a good one to watch if you want to get it idea do the experience um, we saw the real storm chasers on the way. So that was an interesting crowd. You know, they've got the wall bars on the car and they got, you know, practically helmets. They've got all this, you know, uh, weather, meteorological, you know, contraptions on top. And, and they literally into driving into the middle of the storm trying to collect data. The test guy said that's not the scientific way to go about this because you're kind of a moving target. And so, you know, they are collecting some weather observations that they do it. They're probably more thrill seeker than, than scientists. But, uh, they were in a different class by themselves, a, a, a nice group, a fun group to, to chat with uh, on our adventures. But uh, yeah, that was decidedly not what this was.
0: I'd love to be able to do something like that. I'll have to uh, up my, my Twitter stakes and uh, start to become friends with these people so I can uh, embed and deploy uh, with them as well. Cause that sounds really interesting. Uh, how, from From this, you know, from the information they collect, how does it ultimately get into the insurance sphere? Um, and, and how long does that take?
1: That's a great question. You know, I, I think in um, you know, some of the conversations we have, certainly from a long-term perspective, they take the hail information that we gather in the field study. Um, again, they have the biggest database of any actual hail that that's formed. They've got some great molds. If you ever visit the lab, they can kind of show you all the different shapes and sizes, which is fascinating from hail. And so they want to be able to replicate that in the, the lab, and they, they do. They've got a custom machine that they built um, that actually makes hailstones. That if you if you um, get the, the the image of them um kind of like a i don't know if it's an infrared or what but you know you look at that and you look at a real house to happened in the field versus what you would put in the freezer whatever. it's like they are able to simulate very very closely what real hail looks like and it and everything in the field which is remarkable and so they use that ability to create that hail and they obviously test different roofing materials all sorts of different types and then they're able to take that um, that information and give that information back to the roofing manufacturers um, in fact, they're working right now very hard on creating a new test standard for hail that feels a, a superior standard to test impact-resistant shingles um, because it's based on again, you know, what real that real hail looks like—not a steel ball, not a, a spherical hail—and um, you know, in talking with with the colleagues at IHS, the just, um, they said that the roofing manufacturers are, are surprisingly very. Um, receptive for the most part for this information, because that was kind of my skepticism. They said, well, you know, what's motivating them to, to even engage with you in a conversation? And they said, you know, it's a competitive industry. Uh, they don't want to lose market share to somebody else. And uh, a lot of people don't like replacing the roofs. We've had so many hailstorms. Uh, They're looking upgrade to impact resistant. If you have an impact resistant, you're still getting hail damage. Of course, you're very frustrated as a consumer. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, not everybody, but, but, um, they've been pleasantly surprised with um, the level of engagement that they've been able to to get from uh, the roofing and building material industry. Um, having said that, you know what I think people um, may think is that you know this is gonna this is gonna help reduce my hail results next year, and and that's simply not the case. You know for something more short term, um, you know looking at your claims processes is really critical. Um, there's obviously a, a huge industry of storm chase roofers. Sometimes we'll joke about, you know, the guy that uh Joe Smith plumbing and he crossed out the plumbing and he put roofing, you know, as soon as the, the <laughs> went. It's a it's a big problem that, that's affecting all the industry. And so really, you know, a lot of the, these guys, um you know, we had a, a big hail event here in San Antonio last year. And I, like a good underwriter uh, work in my field, I have an impact resistant uh tile roof. And so um we had up to two inch hail head here some golf ball size stuff it was pretty big it was so loud I was standing right next to my son 10 feet away and we we're like shouting at each other in the storm so we got hit pretty good most everybody in the, the neighborhood that had your standard tree champ jingle was um was upgrading their roof but we didn't have to but Nick my phone rang off the hook literally you know multiple calls a day for an entire year I had so many door hanging and so many you know um these guys are very very aggressive and and so um, really educating consumers about um, you know, what to do when you've had a loss, engaging your insurance company right up front, and really knowing what your options are, getting an estimate, um, and these guys make it very convenient to go on your roof and, and tell you if you see damage or not, and you know you really don't know. So, certainly some of them are very reputable. Uh, there are some great roofing companies out there. In many states, including Texas, do not license roofers. And so you've got to do your homework, you know, in terms of this person, you know, license, or be bonded, do they know what they're doing, what they're doing with the Better Business Bureau. And um, it's uh, it's a challenge, I think, for, for all the industry players is, again, you know, we're not going to make a material difference in terms of the, the, the damages that happen from hail short term. So where is the opportunity to help reduce the loss cost? It, it's going to be in your claims handling process.
0: If there are any claims people listening, I'd like to get someone on um, to either on the podcast or to write an article to talk about this because I don't think we see that level of aggressiveness in the Northeast. Um, it seems very much to be a Midwest and Southern thing. I know Florida is really struggling with uh, assignment of benefits and that kind of very aggressive uh, tactics with uh, contractors, so anyone that 's listening uh, the the show is open the the blog is open as well i'd like to learn more about that and see what we can do as an industry um, before we get into uh, Rob your favorite part of the show uh, one one final question on the i b h s how how closely do you do you know how closely they work with um, municipalities. So how does that information ultimately get into the building code? I can see how the you know the roofing manufacturers there could be a benefit there, but you could almost force the hand of the industry if it's just becomes part of the building code.
1: Yeah, so um I would just every uh two years they, they do an evaluation um for uh States of, of their building codes, and they give them a, a score and a rating. And so they do that work. They obviously advocate for for stronger building codes, um, and they educate people about the Fortified Program. And just again, we know um, what it takes to to build um, hardened homes, uh, both in hurricane prone areas and in health prone areas. And um, one of the amazing things about the Fortified Program is how many um, homes that have been built by Habitat for Humanity meet the standards. Habitat actually has a great program called Habitat Strong um, that's really taken off in, in, in certain communities um, with the local habitat folks where they really feel passionate about this. And uh, one of the great linkages uh, between the, the IBHS-415 and the Habitat is, is really to demonstrate that um, yes, there's initial cost to building to this, this, this higher standard that's Code Plus, but if really incremental is, is not that much um, additional um, relative to, to certainly the, the benefits um, that you get, the reduction and the losses that you get. And, and so for Habitat, um, if you if you talk to their folks, why do they do it? Well, um, they want that homeowner to be able to live in the home. So obviously the homeowner has to put in quite a bit of sweat equity in another criteria in order to be eligible for our hab- Habitat for Humanity home. Uh, in return, Habitat wants to make sure that that, that uh, payment Uh, that they've got to meet is affordable, the utilities are going to be affordable, the insurance premium is going to be affordable, and and they want to make sure that there isn't significant out-of-pocket costs for these uh, new homeowners that that purchase their homes. So that's really the motivation from a habitat standpoint. And um, so building codes are definitely a critical part of the the issue. Um, There's another organization, Federal Alliance for Safe Homes, that does a tremendous job. USA is a member company then, and so they also do an amazing job in terms of advocacy. Um, throughout the country on stronger building codes and then uh you know the other part of that is, is the enforcement right so you have building codes on the book but if you're not enforcing your building codes what well, good are they and so um you know for anybody that's had the opportunity to see tim marshall from paying from engineering uh speak he, he does a great job talking to this issue of uh, going to properties in oklahoma following 20 and say more oklahoma and elsewhere and looking at some of these properties and saying you know your code here is either weak or it's strong but, but look you know these buildings don't meet the actual code that, that's here and so having building inspectors and, and really taking that process um, seriously as well and you know honestly it's, it's one of those things i think it's a bit of a challenge because the building code is the minimum standard and so when you kind of throw that out there for builders and you know, the incentive to go code plus is the challenging value proposition for builders so i am sympathetic to them because yes there's value certainly to the homeowner but um, building a home that's cord plus or fortified versus getting that right granite countertop, you know, what is it the homeowner or consumer going to want? Well, they're going to want that shiny countertop. And um, builders that I've talked to that build to the fortified standard tell me that they're constantly having to remind their, their customers this is why you chose fortified. This is why we talked about this. You agreed to, to meet this standard. But when those inevitable, you know, budget trade offs kind of happen, they tend to um, gravitate towards some of those features that are easier to see, feel, and touch and, and not necessarily that. And hardness of the home. So, really educating people about the fortified standard, um, what it is, why it's valuable, um, and, and really demanding more, I guess, as a homeowner consumer for um, your home that so you don't have to pay out of pocket costs. Certainly, you know, if, if you've got a roof of any age and you're paying actual cash value you're going to receive, you know, actual cash value for your roof, you could be um, out uh, several thousand dollars as a homeowner. Um, if you have to repair your roof um, after a hailstorm, so it definitely pays to do your homework as a as a homeowner. But as an industry, we um, need to do a better job getting the word out.
0: Yeah, and I bet I bet IBHS has no problem selling fortified homes to underwriters. The, those trade offs with the granite countertop never come up with uh, a good underwriter. So. <laughs> Okay, Rob. I I don't have any Jeopardy music to play. Um somehow the the song is no longer available on my playlist. So, uh Apple Apple sponged it out. Uh, but this is the part of the show called Rank the Risk and in your honor, I have one question for you dealing with hail. So, uh Rob, you ready for Rank the Risk? I I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Give it to me. Okay. So, uh, I want you to rank the following states by the uh, from the highest average aggregate claims to the lowest for these four states and these are um, claims figures from the year two thousand to twenty thirteen so uh, so average aggregate claims highest to lowest Kansas Oklahoma. Texas and Minnesota so Kansas Oklahoma Texas and Minnesota and Rob you know me there's always a curveball in there uh, hi- highest average aggregate claim which state wears that honor don't think too hard
1: all right well um, yeah I, I uh, you're throwing me off a little bit with Minnesota so I, I know it's Probably not where I I, I think it is. Uh, I think that's where you're going to catch me. But
0: what's number one? Um,
1: I'll go with my gut, and I could be way off on this, but I'm going to say Kansas first, Oklahoma second, Texas third, and Minnesota last. But I know you're going to tell me wrong. So hopefully they got rid of the the
0: booing as well. <laughs> I they they didn't get rid of the booing. I I I should uh, quickly open up my phone, but yeah. Um, the the Minnesota one was the curveball, but it's not in the spot that you think it was the curveball. So um, by far, number one is Texas. Uh, aggregate. So from twenty from the year two thousand to twenty thirteen, they averaged almost a billion dollars a year in hail losses, which is uh, an astronomical number. But uh, what I find even more impressive. Is number two was Minnesota and their average number was 250 million. So what wow. whatever's in the water down there in Texas, it's really bad. Um and, and you know, maybe maybe a lot of that has to do with uh you know bad contractors banging on the door trying to get in to fix your roofs. So one was Texas, two was Minnesota, three was Oklahoma. And again, the other curveball was Kansas. It was number four on this list, but it was like 10th in the top 10, uh, which surprised me, you know. Um, So anyways, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with there's there's just not a lot of stuff in Kansas and the other three states have a bit heftier population. But uh, it was the Minnesota one that uh, that that threw me off. So I'll put, I'll put that up on the show notes so people can see the the direct source for that. So you were a good sport. I, I mean, you're a cat expert. You can't know everything. I, I wouldn't have known that. That's why I do the research and I, and I ask the question. So, uh, Rob, thanks for playing Rank the Risk, and, uh, and thanks for sharing your story. Uh, I, I think, you know, between the, the blog post and now this podcast, it's a, it's a really good one you know, for just in in understanding of risk, but also, you know, for you did the other podcast where we were, you know, trying to encourage millennials and Gen Zers to come in. Uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. You know, I, I can just, I think for a young person, you know, whether they're in science or not in science, it, it's something that really catches your attention um, because it's just, one of the glorious parts of nature and you got to experience it firsthand. So thank you so much for telling your story. I, um, you know, the, uh me and the audience, we really appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate the, the invitation to come on Nick. And, and I know, you know, as a former cat modeler that um the days of just saying, well, I'm not going to write, you know, a mile from the coast. I mean, that's, that's the way we used to do these things. Right. And there's so much, um, science and, data and knowledge that goes behind some of those decisions now. It is really impressive to see how much has evolved over time. And um, I agree with you, there's so many different disciplines, right, that, that kind of come into this space that, that to me, makes it exciting. Uh, you know, I, I do have a motto, and that is that every day outside of the office is a good day at work. And fortunately, uh, I get to experience that on a fairly regular basis.
0: My guest this week has been Rob Galbraith. Rob, thanks again so much. Thanks, Dave.